Hello and welcome to Such Sights to See, the podcast about journeying through cinema with my good friend, the Toshiro Mafune to my Akira Kurosawa, Eric. I how are you? I don't have any idea what that means, but I'm going to take it as a compliment. <laughs> yes, I'm saying that you are like, I'm a really great director and you're an actor that I like working with. I know who Akira Kurosawa is. Does that make me one of the Seven Samurai? Uh, yeah, yeah. You're totally one of them now. Sweet. So now there are eight. <laughs> anyway, uh, I am Patrick and you could follow along with my movie watching on Letterboxd under Long Monkey. And that's all the plugging I'll do for now because we got to get right into it. We got some cool movies to talk about, theoretically. We? Well, h- how has your uh, two weeks been since last episode? Did you watch anything interesting? Uh, I watched one thing interesting, and it's interesting to me because I did not like it the first time I saw it. Oh, okay. Um, and I recently, this past weekend, watched Burn After Reading with a few friends, the Coen Brothers movie Ooh. from, I believe, 2008-ish, Yeah. Um, about a group of incredibly stupid people doing incredibly stupid <laughs> things with something that they believe to be some kind of high-level uh, intelligence national secrets in Washington, D.C., I won't ruin the surprise of what it is, mm-hmm. but it is not that. Right. <laughs> um, and just, it is a, a wonderful catastrophe of uh, the plot. Anyway, the movie is, is great. I love the Coen brothers. I'm surprised at myself for having not liked this movie, but I feel mm. like um, the Coen brothers are a flavor that I enjoy tasting. I love all of their movies, but I do think that sometimes, you know, they get a little overrated. Uh, for as great as they are, people, they put the cult in cult classics with things like <laughs> Big Lebowski, which is a fine, fun movie. But people go crazy for these movies. And maybe that's why I didn't like it originally. I don't know. Yeah, um, I remember when it came out, it was considered like lesser Coen brothers at the time. But I, I think it's really good. I like it a lot. Yeah, yeah. I was not impressed the first time I saw it. And I watched it Saturday, uh, just a couple days ago, and I really loved it. I enjoyed the whole thing. Uh, Maybe I just wasn't um, as attuned to kind of political satire at that point. But this really does just satirize both Washington and, you know, just human beings in general and how stupid we can be. Yes. I like how you described it as a wonderful catastrophe, because that's really what that script is. It's just everybody yes. like uh, slamming into each other in the most fun, weirdest ways. Yes, I really like nobody... J.K. Simmons. Yes. His character basically sums up the entire movie. Yes. <laughs> he does. Uh, it, there's a line he has. It's like, uh, come back to me when, when this makes sense, because <laughs> nobody knows what anybody else in this movie is doing or why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And it causes such strife, but in, in a way that only the, the Coen brothers could make funny. It is right. hilarious, despite all of the bloodshed and the tragedy in this movie. Mm-hmm. And what a great cast, too. I'm just thinking about it now. I'm like, wow, there's so many names in this one. Brad Pitt as the goofy <laughs> bicycle, not messenger, but he's he's a cyclist, a personal trainer, and he is just one of the dumbest people I think ever committed to cellulite. Yes. <laughs> just yep. an incredibly stupid person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fun and uh, Richard Jenkins. I love Richard Jenkins. Oh, I forgot everything. Richard Jenkins was in yeah. it. Yes, he's George like Clooney, of course. Man. Yep, George Clooney. Yeah, Francis McDormand. Uh, 
With yeah, Tilda so Swinton in this one. Tilda Swinton is yep, yeah. John Malkovich. John Malkovich's <laughs> wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I gotta watch that again. It's been a while. Yeah, much, much better than I remember it being. Very enjoyable. And it makes me want to watch a bunch of the Coen brothers that I that I haven't really checked out. I've heard really great things about Hail Caesar. Never seen it. Um, I just watched that of... recently. It, I liked it more the first time. Oh, second really? time was a little disappointed. I think you'll appreciate it for sure. But Well, it's about like the golden age of cinema, right? It is, yeah. Right up yeah. my alley. But uh, I don't know. I feel like it misses the mark in a lot of ways it's on second viewing. Okay. What about you? Did you see anything fun? Uh, I saw a bunch of stuff. So terrible. You want to talk about? Um, well, uh, I'll go all the way back to the beginning. We talked about Thor last Thor love and thunder last episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. It is not that great. It is not as good as Ragnarok. It is very forgettable and has a lot of tone issues with the jokes happening at the, you know, during and no Marvel character can take anything seriously. It feels like, you know, everyone's always like so ironic and joking, but it also just, uh, I don't know. It just felt very boring, <laughs> which is sad for that. Such a colorful yeah. character in a colorful setting, you know? And the real shame as I thought about it more is how great Christian Bale is in the, the little screen time he has. Mm-hmm. And they don't actually outside of the first god that he kills they don't show him really doing anything besides that one attack on the village the rest is just him kind of like waiting around for thor and being scary and chewing the scenery and nothing yeah you know like you know he's evil but they don't show him actually being evil or doing bad things i don't even know that i would say he's evil i think he's uh misled and uh in in a way i think he's a better villain a better embodiment of what they tried to do with the Scarlet Witch. I don't know if you saw Dr. Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Yes. Um, but the both characters are supposed to be kind of like decent human beings who have been twisted by a dark force. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought they did a better job of showing his twist and making it make sense than they did with the Scarlet Witch. I, I agree. The only problem I have with the villain here was that the, the sword was the real villain you know right. taking him over i mean he had a reason to hate these gods based on his origin i thought it would have been cool if they kind of ran with that more than just having a sword you know possess him this sword that really we have no origin about at all it's just an evil sword and that kind of felt a little uh lame because <laughs> yeah. he would he would have been much better if it was him doing these things i thought yeah comic book nerds know all about that sword um, right, okay. there's anything wrong with being a comic book nerd Right, but right. It wasn't explored in the movie. Like a lot of people thought that that's how, I guess, in the comics. And please forgive me if I'm wrong here. I'm sure our comic nerd <laughs> followers will let us know. Yeah. Um, I love these movies. I don't, comic books are so intimidating to me because there's so many timelines. I don't know where to start. The movies are kind of getting that way now. Mm-hmm. But at least I've been in it from the beginning. But the sword, from what I understand, is somehow related to the symbiotes, which is what makes Venom also known as like evil Spider-Man to people who don't, who are less familiar with comic books. So Venom carnage, that was the theory before the movie was that this sword is how they were going to introduce that into like the official Marvel universe. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's fine that that is 
something that the the real fans or of the comics understand. So maybe the movie is shifting away from you know my demographic. Casual. Yeah, yeah, and the the these movies and all the TV shows they're just shifting away from me, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that, but yeah, I was not. I prefer not. to do that usually. Yeah, I know a lot of people do in in my real life, so I'm used to it. <laughs> I think anyway, you're the only person I know who can get an empty seat on any New York City bus or something. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'll use it to my advantage while I can. So um, I did see a, a, a better movie, uh, not a great movie, but at least it had a singular vision. It was Nope. I can't wait to see this one. I'm a huge uh, fan of Jordan Peele. Yeah, I really liked Get Out a lot. And Us, I didn't like as much, but I do appreciate his direction a lot and how he gets strong performances out of people. And he has a really strong vision. Mm-hmm. He's trying to do interesting, big ideas. And he's not making like studio movies, which is cool. Nope is similar. I won't spoil it because, you know, you got to go in fresh. But I will say that I felt kind of like I did with Us. It misses the mark in a bunch of ways, but it's still a really strong direction. It's, it's full of really cool ideas. And he has such a way with these like, horror moody images and like setting the tone. He does it really well in this movie. Yeah, I was going to say, I hate, I feel like atmospheric is a word that definitely gets overused, especially Mm -hmm. in both fiction and film. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it really applies to Jordan Peele and how he creates these absolutely insane bonkers off the wall um, concepts. Mm -hmm. But they the atmosphere of these movies is real you know us is insane to think about uh an upside down kind of world (laughs) hidden behind a carnival but he does such a great job of making it feel real Mm -hmm. like the atmosphere of these movies is just really great and intense i haven't seen nope so i don't know but it seems like a similar kind of thing it is definitely similar the his he's a really good director when it comes to that i just wish and his screenplays are really ambitious, but with big ambition, you could you could miss. You know, he took a yeah. big swing with Nope, and I think he missed the mark on some things. But overall, I really appreciate that he's out there making movies, and I still like this a lot. It just yeah. it's a bit it's a bit messy. He almost reminds me of Stephen King in the way that uh, just creating these truly outlandish, unique very creatively inspired ideas that maybe sometimes, you know, Stephen King is famous for not being able to end things. Uh, Maybe Jordan Peele is the same way where he creates just this fantastic concept that doesn't always maybe um, come through it at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. You'll have to tell me when you see it. Did you see anything else in these past few days? Nothing worth really mentioning. Okay, well, I'm going to run through uh, one thing that's definitely not worth mentioning, but it's not worth mentioning so much that I need to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the I think my letterbox review was just aggressively mediocre. That's all. That's all I wrote. It, it was. Um, that's my dating tagline. <laughs> the Eurovision Song Contest: The Story of Fire Saga, the Will Ferrell movie about. Uh, you know, the Eurovision contest, he's an Icelandic singer uh, who's not very good at singing, 
but how dare he, you? But he wants to be a Eurovision star. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about it too much, but it just it's this like Netflix movie that is so cheap looking, not much care put into like any of the decisions, you know, that doesn't look nice. It doesn't feel nice watching it. It's completely forgettable. It's not funny, but it is just decent enough that you're going to watch it, (laughs) you know? And I'm really starting to hate that. (laughs) I do know because I watched the first half of this and I was really enjoying maybe the first third of it. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, this would be a really good, funny, short movie. But it was so, at least to the point that I got to, I didn't finish it because it was I was getting tired and like kind of dozing. Mm-hmm. But it, it seemed so formulaic. Like, I know what's oh, yeah. going to happen already. Mm-hmm. I don't have to watch the rest of this. But the first, like, you know, third of it was really funny. And then it just mm-hmm. kind of, you know, reverted to form. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was funny, but that's that's fine we can have a difference of opinion there, but I do agree that it was very predictable and you didn't need to see the second half. Um, also it's over two hours. Yeah. That was the other thing. <laughs> I remember like getting kind of sleepy and being like, okay, there's gotta be like half an hour, 40 minutes yeah. left. And I was like, what? No. Oh my God. Yeah. Why? Well, it just, I don't know why it feels like they didn't put much care into it. And it just annoys me, but that's all I'll say. Um, I did see another movie in the theater that they did put a lot, uh, some care into where the crawdads sing. Do you know this okay. one? It's like, you're I in mean, your library I know the book because off, I work yeah. in a library and yeah. it was hugely popular. I want to say three or four years ago, probably when it first, it was definitely pre pandemic when it was uh-huh. first published, everybody wanted it. And then recently, again, with the advent of the movie, everybody wants it again. And there's some kind of controversy with the author, but I don't uh, care. I'm unaware of that. I just know Apparently, that. back in the 90s, her husband and her son or stepson or something shot a poacher on their property in Africa. Okay. And, like, murdered him. But wow. it was 30 years ago, and it was a poacher, which doesn't make it okay, but it makes it, you know whatever. And it wasn't actually the author. It was her husband and their son or oh, his okay. son or something. Right. Right. Interesting. Well, I would not have thought that um, based on this movie, which takes place in like the Bayou and the, the deep South. And it's definitely like a teen novel sort of vibe. Uh, it looked like a John Green movie. Like yeah. A Paper yeah. Towns or something like that. Exactly. But and it's full of tropes, but it does have uh, a good location and really strong performances by the central characters, which is nice. It's just a pleasant, predictable film that is just well made. The big problem I had with it was that it looks like a TV movie. I wish they had some more money because they got this cool bayou location with like the, you know, those draping weeds on all the trees, like in the swamp. And a, I just wish I could have seen that with like a really good cinematographer on film would have looked really nice. Yeah. But it was a Harper Collins production, which is interesting. I guess. Wow. They're opening up their own movie house, I guess. <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right. I'm going to talk about one more movie. Working Girl. You ever see this one? 1988? No. Working Girl. I definitely have heard of it, though. 
Yeah, directed by Mike Nichols, uh, Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver. And it is a like an 80s uh, workplace comedy romantic drama about a young that woman. That genre was to... like so big in the 80s, yeah. it feels like. It, it really was because I saw fairly recently The Secret to My Success with Michael J. Fox. Uh-huh. And this is like the... Nine to five. Yeah. Uh, this is Working Girl is like a remake of The Secret of My Success. It's basically Melanie Griffith is this young woman who was trying to make it in the business world and her boss, Sigourney Weaver, this hotshot, you know, uh, power power uh, manager in this, in this company gets injured at a skiing accident and Melanie Griffith, the oh, secretary. So white people in the 80s. <laughs> kind of takes over her office and tries to push her idea through because uh, her Sigourney Weaver had stolen her idea for this big merger. Anyway, so she tries to, she pretends to be a manager. She hooks up with Harrison Ford, which is this other manager guy, and they're doing this deal together to get this merger to go through. And, you know, it's feel good. 80s romantic comedy but it really works because of the three leads they're you know they're great actors all three of them yeah, hall of fame actor well i don't know that i would go that far with melanie griffith but at least sigourney <laughs> weaver and harrison ford yeah yeah and uh, sigourney weaver is so funny as the the kind of the, the evil boss she's really good I, I liked her role a lot so and mike nichols knows how to make a movie you know he made the graduate and He's uh, been working forever. So even if this had like all the 80s vibes that you would expect, at least he knows how to pull it off and make it fun, which is cool. Cool. Also, has Alec Baldwin. Has Alec Baldwin ever played like a nice guy? Because he's the sleazy boyfriend in this one. <laughs> he seems to always be like a sleazy he's been boyfriend guy. <laughs> but, you know, he's he's good at that. Um, so yeah, working girl, check it out. If you're in the mood for eighties fun. So, um, that's all I watched besides the movie of the episode today, which was one that we randomly picked last episode. Speak of the eighties. Yes. So we were tasked with watching electric Jesus 2020 directed by Chris white. And then we Chris white. Written by Chris White. And then we each watch our own movie inspired by that movie. But let's talk about Electric Jesus first. Would you like to go into Electric Jesus? I I guess I will. <laughs> um, Electric Jesus is about a Christian rock band that goes on tour over the summer of 1986. Back when, like, so my brother was 16 at the time and I was six. And I remember, like, him listening to Striper not that he was religious at all, but that was definitely one of the bands. So some of this was like semi-autobiographical for me to watch because I kind oh. of was like in that scene by proxy. Um, right, right. But it's told through the eyes of their sound guy who's not really in the band. Nope. <laughs> um, uh, but is the main character of the movie. Uh, this band, uh, 316, they play a concert, and I use that term loosely, at a church in Alabama one of the preacher's daughters kind of stows away on the bus, but that ends up being okay because she can sing. So Brian Baumgartner, I guess the big name in this movie, even though he's like really kind of a B character, I guess. Yeah. He's Um, definitely not one of the main ones. He's their sleazy manager. He's their sleazy manager. I really, I thought this was going to be a much funnier movie than it was. 
or at least than it intended to be. I yeah. still found it to be very humorous, but I don't think it was intentional. I, um, I agree with you. There were there there was a lot of jokes that the movie meant to be funny, like even almost paused for like you know let the audience take in the joke, but it was yeah. they were they never landed. They were all dead for me. Yeah, they just stopped half a beat shy of breaking the fourth <laughs> wall and staring at the camera in several lines. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, their manager uh, kidnaps her. And lets them <laughs> lets her play with the band. It comes out later that I guess her dad was okay with it, but yeah. you know, one of the flaws I'll get to later is that we don't see a lot of things happen. Yes, or there's no yeah, yeah there's no like yeah, you just don't see things happen in this movie it, a lot it, of times. A, a lot of it is even like really important things. For instance, the main character, why he became he keeps talking about being saved and becoming yes. religious at a concert. His character was so like. I one dimensional. It didn't scratch the surface at all as to why he was doing this. His mom had to talk him into it. Yeah. That, like that's the beginning true. of the movie, you know, he auditions, I guess they do show his audition for the band. Although why you need to audition to be a sound guy, which is just, that's not a thing. I have plenty of friends who've been in bands like venues have their own sound guy. And yep, if you're yep. a tiny band like this, you just set up your amps and play. Like, yeah, they don't need especially sound in, guy, the, yeah. in the 80s. You're not bringing a portable sound rig with you. <laughs> right. So it's why wasn't the main character just in the band? Yeah, that's a poor choice. I completely agree. But there were so I many can, poor and weird choices. But anyway, I can, yeah, I can gloss over that one because, you know, if you're not in the know, maybe it makes sense. Yeah, it's just it's it's an example of the weird choices they made in this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um. So obviously Eric is in love with this girl who stows right. away on their bus. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of a typical young band learning the ropes kind of movie, except Christian rock. You know, the right. shows kind of get bigger as they go along. Uh, they're invited to record at the Nashville studio mm-hmm. of the Christian band who saved the main character. Uh, right. I don't remember the name of this band. Almost kind of reminiscent to me of like a really much less entertaining version of that thing you do or like an almost famous because you know the guy's not in the band really maybe that's what he was going for uh the band is well on their way to touring with as an opening act for motley Crue and striper in their heaven and hell tour which is a real thing that happened oh wow but they have one last hurdle the label or whoever's running this tour wants to see them play a show with secular bands at a metal club in, I think they said it was Texas uh-huh. called Purgatorio. <laughs> right. And these are not just like hair metal bands. These are not like a poor man's poison or something like that. These are crazy, like cannibal corpse, satanic panic style bands. Oh yeah. Full yeah. Of people who are like clearly supposed to be, impersonating devil worshipers if not actually devil worshipers and the crowd is full of those kinds of people Mm -hmm. um in what i thought was a really funny scene the they kind of balk the band balks it going to this thing which is something that they've been working towards um and the the lead singer who looks like he's about 40 years old but it comes (laughs) out that he is not even 18 yet uh says i don't know that i want is playing a show at a place that serves alcohol Yep. And it's like, what do you think they're going to be serving at these giant arena tours if you're like <laughs> working to do that? What 
And then Eric gives the rousing speech about, you know, basically proselytizing. Don't you want to go where the devil is or something along those lines? I don't want to preach to the choir anymore. (laughs) Yeah, it was like supposed to be this motivational speech that I think I laughed through because it was so (laughs) overdramatic. It was. Um, So, of course, with that kind of crowd, they basically get booed off stage. Um, So, you know, everything falls apart. The movie's over, right? Nope. <laughs> nope. Nope. I was like, okay, cool. Oh no, there's half an hour left or so. <laughs> the girl basically runs away. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of it comes out that her father is coming home. And this is another one of those things you don't see. She just tells him my father called. He told me he's coming home. Yeah. Okay. You know, there was never like any tension there about her father, you know, after it was kind of glossed over after she was basically kidnapped mm-hmm. uh, because she can sing. Um, there, there was never any tension there. So it's just kind of happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pause you there because the lack of tension was something I felt throughout the whole movie. Like I didn't feel like there was any sort of conflict driving the story until like that last part where they have to go to the scene. Yeah. There's no conflict until there's conflict. (laughs) Um, you know, they're, they're in this, after they get booed, booed off stage, they're in their dressing room. And uh, there's some guy there. We don't know who he is. Yeah, that, I don't know who he was. He just. I was like, yeah. tr- I'm still trying to figure out, like, was he the club owner? But it seems like he. I think he was in uh, charge of like something like, I don't know. He was definitely a religious figure. Yeah, maybe he was in with uh, a label. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think these last two scenes. So anyway. Uh, I'll get through the plot and then I'll go over all the problems with <laughs> go for it. these last two scenes. Cause they kind of sum up the whole movie. Um, it fast forwards. I don't know if they said I would guess 20 or 30 years in the future. Yeah. He's going, you don't know where he is, but he's in the, he's driving his car and going over the end of the band, like the classic. Oh, and the guitarist did this and the lead singer did this. And it turns out he's going to the funeral for Sarah, who is the girl who can sing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the old band is there. So why did they do that? Why is he saying, you know, he's a salesman. I don't know for what. And then five minutes later, that guy's in the movie. <laughs> like you could have done like, Hey, what are you guys up to? Oh, did you hear about the guitarist? But nope, we had like a five to 10 minute long monologue mm-hmm. by the main character telling us things. And then we saw these characters again. Yeah, I agree with that because the movie is it's over. Uh, <laughs> it's over, but like you could have ended it with him being nostalgic about his time in the band. And then that that's what the movie would have been about. It would have been about, his nostalgia for that time. But then after he has that nostalgia, then they're all together and it, it, it doesn't, doesn't feel right. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of it. He ends up leaving uh, the, the girl's sister. This girl had two sisters. There was a scene earlier in the movie where they're hanging out at their house, kind of chumming mm-hmm. around with these three girls, three or four girls, Um, And then the sister is there saying, oh, you know, those were some of the best times of her life. Also, my sister got to tour the world with every big musical act there ever was in the 80s. Yeah. And you didn't didn't even know about it. (laughs) Yeah. Two seconds before he's like, I thought about trying to find her. And then when I did, it was too late. And it's like, 
Google was a thing by the time this movie was taking place or this part Mm -hmm. of the movie anyway. Like, I'm sure if she was really touring with Michael Jackson, you would have been able to find a record. Like, you didn't try very hard, dude. (laughs) No. You seem to be very heartbroken about the loss of this girl who you never saw after a couple weeks in the summer of 86. He has a throwaway line about, I wasn't, I haven't been in the music scene for a while. And that's why he didn't know. I lost my ear for music. And it's just like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you didn't even play an instrument. The movie is trying to make it dramatic, you know, that he would only learn this after she died, but it's not written well enough or smart enough to pull it off. Yeah. And like, so the last two scenes are really kind of everything kind of encapsulate everything that I thought was really bad in this movie you know they're in the dressing room there's some guy passed out on his vomit in, on the floor and i'm like who's that guy he's not in the <laughs> band we have no idea where he's from but they focus on him like two or three times of like a vomit shot in this guy's face mm-hmm. what's he doing in their dressing room who is that guy <laughs> they're all mad at the bass player for signing some kind of publishing contract that we never saw yeah and then do and everyone is mad at him and you're mm-hmm. like did I miss a scene? No, they just, there's drama now because there has to be drama because the band has to break up. The manager comes in, Brian Baumgartner's character comes in, seems like he's probably drunk. And they kind of passed uh, some comments about him possibly drinking and definitely have a drinking problem, but there was no tension there. Right. There was no scenes where this was affecting the band at all until this scene. Right. There's hints at things throughout, but there's there's zero conflict until the climax when it just all falls apart. And that's what made it so boring for me to watch. Just spoiler yeah. alert, I was very bored with this movie. It was incredibly <laughs> boring. And yeah, like that guy we talked about who is possibly a record contract executive or some mm-hmm. kind of person involved in whatever the church music scene hierarchy is telling mm-hmm. them, They'll never play again after this show, but they were set up to fail. Like no striper could have played in that and they would have had the same treatment. It, oh it yeah. This was just an thing. anti-Christian uh, crowd. So they were good. Whoever played that was a Christian band would have failed. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was like, and it's a long, long ish movie for what it is. It's an hour and 45 ish minutes. Yep. And it was almost like they had the choice between having scenes that actually like had dramatic tension or introduced uh, Brian Baumgartner's drinking, for instance, mm-hmm. or, you know, more tension with the girl's dad or things like that. But then they said, wait, we wrote these songs, Commando for Christ, not kidding, and Barabbas. <laughs> So we have to put them in the movie. So they ditched those scenes and instead like filmed that weird scene of them lip syncing to their own song in the hotel room. Yeah. Like it's like there were so many really long music scenes Mm -hmm. instead of scenes that could have actually helped the movie been at least interesting, if not, you know, good. Agreed. Agreed. At least the songs were decent. I enjoyed the music. They were (laughs) hilarious. Yeah. Let's yeah, go commando but... for Christ. <laughs> I'm just like, yep. But on point, I went, uh, I went to Seton hall and every once in a while they would have like a band play outside on the green or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, I would end up going cause there'd be other stuff there, you know, like grilling and food, basically food and drinks and stuff. And I'd be like, whatever, I'm not doing anything, but it was mm-hmm. always at these like super serious people with these 
horribly stupid songs that were really (laughs) like, oh, yeah, like this is very accurate for what that scene is like, at least in my limited exposure to it. At least has that going for it. And I was always like struck by how how you could totally make a Christian rock song that was so full of dual entendres that would be mm. magnificently hilarious and nobody was doing it. And this is probably <laughs> the closest anybody's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they would definitely played that up with people being shocked by some of the lines in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. I, so my overall opinion of the movie was boring for sure, but no conflict for sure. But my biggest problem was that the, there was no motivation for that main character that really bothered me. He was saved. He became really religious and he wants to join this band, but they, it was all just like on the surface. They never touched into why he had become saved or why he was so religious or what he was trying to get out of this experience besides just proselytizing for the Lord. But the we got to make Jesus yeah. famous. Yeah. Like, it's like, he's very famous, bro. And that speech does happen later in the movie, which I was very thankful for. <laughs> but just having someone say that is like not enough for motivation, you know? Yeah. And that just spoke to the whole thing about there was no momentum for that for me. I really struggled trying to pay attention to this one. I agree a thousand percent. That's a, a when your main character, when you sit through an hour and 46, and still don't understand what their real motivation was besides mm. like, I want to be a sound guy yeah. for a Christian rock band specifically. Like, okay, but what's your, what's he really trying for? Mm-hmm. Cause mm-hmm. you did it. You did it in the first five minutes of the movie. Congratulations. Yeah. Now yes. what's your actual goal? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> so the, yeah, this definitely also looked kind of cheap. It was definitely a low budget and you can feel the low budget. Um, and it was also very personal. I mean, Probably this Chris White has been in Christian rock band or in that world, at least felt that that's way. what it seemed like. It seemed yeah. like his attempt at almost famous with a Christian rock. Cause that, that's yeah. basically like a quasi autobiographical film for Cameron Crowe. And I didn't know if that's, I couldn't find much about, not that I tried particularly hard, <laughs> but there's really nothing about uh, Chris White. It's such a common name. Like I'll never find anything about him. I know. Uh, agreed. I don't know what um what his deal is. I also couldn't tell at the beginning if he was trying to make fun of the Christian rock scene or it was an ode to the Christian rock scene. I don't think it did either. I think it kind of just like went right in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um. But at the end, during the credits, you can see a lot of outtakes and stuff from the movie. Them, oh, all the I people. did not stick around. So the credits just had behind-the-scenes footage. And whenever a movie has behind-the-scenes footage in the credits, it's usually because the director and the crew and everybody are so proud they made a movie that they just can't let go. They have to show like all this extra stuff. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like mm-hmm. an amateur movie that they were so happy that they made. They had a great time making it. They were they were overindulgent during the credits and showing. Or it's bloopers in a Jackie Chan movie. Yeah, that's separate because that Jackie Chan likes to show how uh, you know how crazy the filming actually was. <laughs> this one feels just indulgent a little bit, which I like to give little leeway to people making their own visions. But this just didn't feel like a vision at all. <laughs> that was my yeah. problem. 
Um, apparently, Brandy Lynn Sebrin of MovieWeb gave the film a positive review and wrote, if you can check yes, please, to Spinal Tap, Napoleon Dynamite, and Almost Famous, you've got yourself a wonderful treat to look forward to. I would like you all to know that that is a lie. <laughs> that is one of the reasons I wanted to watch this, because I was like, oh, this will be a fun Christian rockumentary. It yeah. is not. Yeah, it is not fun. It is not a mockumentary. It is not even quirky enough to be enjoyable. Well said. Before we uh, move on, do you know who played the uh, the preacher dad of the girl? I didn't know until I looked on IMDb. <laughs> I was shocked that it was Judd Nelson of yep. um, the Breakfast Club fame. Yeah, yeah. He uh, does not, you know, interesting transformation. But it is a long time ago that, the breakfast, that he was in the Breakfast Club. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on to what we were inspired by? Absolutely. Inspired to watch. I was inspired to watch a movie about a touring rock band. I went with Cocksucker Blues. (laughs) 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 Cocksucker Blues from 1972. It is a documentary that follows the Rolling Stones, their first tour back in the U.S. since the tragedy at Altamont, where there was a Hells Angels killed somebody in the crowd during their free concert. I don't know if you heard that whole story. There's another documentary about that called Gimme Shelter. Anyway, this one was actually commissioned by the Stones. They got this documentarian to film them during their tour. Robert Frank. Robert Frank gave basically film stuff himself, avant-garde style, just willy-nilly filming things. He gave cameras to like all the some of the crew, some of the roadies and some of the band members and whatever. Anybody can just pick up a camera and start filming them while they were doing behind the scenes stuff. And then edited it together. And then the Rolling Stones saw it and said, No way is this going to get released. <laughs> this shows us in a bad light shows them doing drugs it shows uh people having the sex on the on the bus uh it, it shows the just the doldrums and the sad life in between shows that goes on on these mm-hmm. on these big tours and eventually uh they they made a deal that this guy was the director Robert Frank was allowed to show the movie at like ar- archival screenings as long as he was in the room. Like that was a deal. So they couldn't release it anywhere, but he could show it at like whatever museums or art galleries as long as he was there. Mm-hmm. Somehow it wound, wound up on YouTube and now everyone's seen it. But um, what's interesting is it shows a lot of boring stuff on these tours, a lot of like not fun things. You know, you get to see like roadies uh, just like, you know, shooting heroin, uh, these groupies getting, you know, railed in the back of the bus while <laughs> the band is just hanging out. And like, like, I don't know, it just it's just such a like a and no one seems to be having fun. It's almost like the sex and drugs are just perfunctory for them at this point. And Mick Jagger is always going on having to do interviews and stuff and those are perfunctory for him as well. And they're always in a hotel room that looks exactly the same, even though the locations are different. And then in between 
all this boring stuff. This was like the heyday of the Stones. They put on some great live shows and they show these, you know, scenes from their shows. And it's like amazing. They're like really intense and dynamic. And I can tell why they were such a big band back then, 1972, mm-hmm. you know, and they're, they're really good on stage. There's a number with uh, Stevie wonder that they did where they do like this medley of can't get no satisfaction. That's like really, really good. And really intense and like just so cool to watch. And then you get back to like the behind the scenes of just like, you know, I don't know them lazily just mumbling to each other. There's one point where, where uh, Keith Richards, he's in a hotel room and and him and some roadie, they just start unplugging the TV and they're like unscrewing it. And then they're like, is the cable undone? Blah, blah, blah. And then they just slowly pick it up and they just, go to the balcony and they look over the balcony and they're like, we got to make sure no one's out there. Okay. No one's out there. And they throw it out the window and then that's it. They're just doing <laughs> it because like they got nothing else to do. It's not like they're having a wild party and they throw the TV out the window. It's just like, all right, we got to unplug it. We got to make sure no one's there. And now we'll throw the TV out just cause the rock know, and roll got, lifestyle, baby. Yeah. It looks miserable. It really does. <laughs> but it got me wondering like, maybe there's something to that dynamic, that dichotomy of like being completely bored, traveling, stuck in a hotel for, you know, days. And then on on the weekend doing this like killer show, letting all your energy out on stage and then being bored for another week. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's gotta be, nobody can be on all the time. So maybe it's like, you know, self-preservation, conserve your energy and then just go crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very interesting documentary. It's really boring though. Like there's like re- interesting things sprinkled throughout, but it's not a fun watch. Mm-hmm. Luckily it's only 90 minutes and it's really like a time capsule uh, of, you know, one of the biggest bands of all time. So interesting. I'm glad I watched it. Cool. I am glad I watched my choice. I had to go after watching an hour and 45 of Christian rock. I had to watch an hour and 45 of Studio 666, the Foo Fighters movie, which was technically directed by BJ McDonald, but it really felt like it really felt like the Foo Fighters made this movie. It does not look in most cases uh, professionally done, although there are some like at least B level visual effects, which were pretty cool. It is. BJ McDonald actually has extensive experience as a camera operator on some huge movies, including the most recent Maverick uh, and a lot of things His only directing experience that I saw on IMDb is like mainly band and concert documentary slash films. Uh, A lot. He's done a lot of Slayer short films. And for those of us who are Slayer fans, myself included, uh, Carrie King does play one of the roadies in this movie. Carrie King is the guitarist for Slayer. Oh, this is a fictional Um, movie. This is a fictional movie. Yeah, kind of, kind of. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Basically, the story is the Foo Fighters are about to record their 10th album and Dave Grohl doesn't really want to go to any of the local recording studios. So they get kind of get pointed towards this creepy house uh, in the hills outside of L.A. Dave Grohl has writer's block. Uh, Creepy things are kind of happening around the house. The movie actually opens showing... um, a girl getting murdered, you know, in the process of recording a record. And it turns out to be this house. Of course it is. 
Um, mm-hmm. And just like, you know, creepy things are happening around the house. I don't want to give away too much because it did come out this year. Turns into almost a mashup of like The Shining and one of those Beatles movies like eight days a week or maybe even kind of a spinal tap, despite not being a mockumentary. It's just like a really goofy movie. It looks like it's the movie the Foo Fighters wanted to make, which is a good and a bad thing. None of these people are actors, uh, which really does detract from what probably is a cool concept. I enjoyed watching it because I love the Foo Fighters. Dave Grohl is an exceptionally interesting person just in general. If you read about him at all, really interesting. He has a book that came out in the past two or three years. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but apparently everyone who has read or listened to it has loved it. Uh, And I believe he does the audiobook and he kind of narrates the whole thing and he's just a great storyteller. Um, And so, yeah, it is very uh, much a Foo Fighters centric movie about a house with a demon in it telling them to write rock songs and Dave Grohl becoming possessed by this demon very enjoyable I kind of wonder if it wasn't the Foo Fighters if it would have been better or worse though that was my big problem with it because they don't even Dave Grohl is not a good actor oh okay Uh, I'm sorry I love you Dave Grohl but none of them can act Mm. Uh, which maybe maybe was a good thing. I can't really decide. And that's the problem. Like, this is a cool concept that worked because I like the Foo Fighters. But if you don't like the Foo Fighters, you will probably just not like this movie at all. Okay. So maybe I enjoyed the watching them. But mm. if, if like, if you took the same script and put talent around it, I think it could have been, you know, not a groundbreaking horror movie by any means, but it could have been a very good perhaps maybe i don't know i'm not 100 mm-hmm. sure the ideas uh, were fun they were fun i mean it's a cool concept uh does it is it filmed like a movie movie or is it filmed like a it documentary? is filmed like a movie yes okay yeah yeah i like some of the cast too they got some uh you know john carpenter makes an appearance john carpenter oh. did some of the mu- music and there was one point oh, cool. where i heard like this like cheesy synth music and I was like, that's a ripoff of the Halloween theme. And then right when it did, the opening credit of John Carpenter came nice. on. And I was like, oh, OK. So it's an homage <laughs> to his own music, kind of. Oh, cool. Just cool. like one little phrase in the music that was like Halloween, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. It knows its references, I guess. Yeah, so, I liked uh, it, but um, could have been better. OK. Well, better than Electric Jesus, at least. <laughs> Way more entertaining. Yeah. Very gory. Oh, that's um, good. That's good. Very gory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Definitely. song that my one complaint was a like, it's a Foo Fighters movie. Mm-hmm. I think they succeeded in what they were going for. So kudos to, to a bunch of musicians who it looks like kind of just decided to make a movie. Maybe, maybe. Right. And had the connections to get it funded. Um. But I was disappointed that it wasn't like a musical movie like those old Beatles movies where it was basically like an album was the soundtrack. Like there was one song mm-hmm. which really kicked ass. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was kind of it. Like I wanted more Foo Fighters songs in it, even if it was old songs and not like new stuff or an album or something like that. I thought that would have been really cool if they just even had like riffs that weren't completed songs or things like that. Because there's yeah. a lot of, at least a fair amount of time of the band playing these songs. I was going uh, to ask have if there was a companion album. No, not as far <laughs> as I know. 
Uh, I don't even think the song from this album is on any of their albums. Um, okay. I haven't really kept up with their catalog in the most recent years, but yeah, there, there was the issue though, much like electric Jesus, where it could have ended in one spot and then kept going and got a little more muddled. Okay. The ending got muddled. Okay. And not in a good thinking way of like, Oh, I thought I knew what happened, but maybe there's like sometimes that horror movie twist at the end. Right. Right. No, they just added some stuff in at the end, oh, but okay. otherwise. <laughs> All right. Well, it sounds, uh, it sounds interesting. Maybe I'll check that one out sometime. All right. Are you ready to talk about what we're going to watch next time? I am. As soon as I open the spreadsheet. I have updated our list slightly to include some recent additions that I think you put on there. And then we have 20 solid movies. Again, lower number is bad. Higher number is good, at least according to Letterboxd ratings. <laughs> oh. All right, so I think it's my turn to roll. Go for it. Let's see. Ooh, an 11. Meatballs. Oh. <laughs> 1979. I've never seen Meatballs. You haven't seen Meatballs. It should be fun. Ivan Reitman. Bill Murray, man. Oddly enough, I think I saw Meatballs 4. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this will explain not, everything. <laughs> I'm not even sure if there's a Meatballs 2 and 3. Oh, is it one of those things where they uh, <laughs> where they just skipped around? I, I really don't know. Well, uh, I could tell you there is a Meatballs 2 and 3. Okay, perfect. Yep. So it ranges from 1979 to 1992 for Meatballs 4. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah, summer camp shenanigans or something. Yeah, sounds fun. Classic 80s, or is this even late 70s, maybe the first 79. Wow. So it's got to be good. How could it be bad? Yeah, exactly. All right, well, uh, well, we'll talk about it in next episode. Until then, uh, if you'd like to follow along with my movie watching, again, Long Monkey on Letterboxd, check me out. Also, check out my other projects at proleary.com. Eric, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Just you. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we'll end it. Have a good night and sweet dreams.